0: Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MeatEater to get 20% off your membership today. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So, before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.
1: This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless.
2: We're on the Meat Eater Podcast.
3: You can't predict anything.
0: Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from Merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, it's the return of the author, Buddy Levy. He's the author. uh, he He was... Previously, way back at episode 197. God, was it that long ago? Yeah, I was, was just weird. thinking the same thing. I feel like long you were just sitting ago. here a couple minutes ago. The episode Eating Folks in the Arctic. <laughs> that was a good title. It's a great one. <laughs> what, t- tell
2: about the books you came in. Because you came in and we talked about Crockett. You bet. Yeah. And uh, wrote a book called American Legend about the life of, a, of David Crockett. And uh, then... Labyrinth of Ice was a book that I wrote about the Greeley expedition that ended up with some cannibalism involved Mm -hmm, and, uh, you know, grim experiences. Oh, it's just like
0: two, it's like, (laughs) I don't know how you could write this stuff.
2: You know, it's funny. I, I got asked by one of my professors a while ago. He's like, do you ever write books in which no one dies? And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> I haven't yet. Oh, it's just everybody's you know? like their
0: feet falling off and they t- take their mittens off and their hands stuck in their mitten. It's just like, <laughs> oh man, I could believe you went and now you, you, your new book's out, Empire of Stone and Ice. And it's like a bunch more people freezing to death and dying
2: and. Yeah, I like it. I like to see uh, people <laughs> at up against it, you know, when they are um, in the elements having to use their wits to survive, you know. And a lot of times, the, you know, the expeditions start out with lofty goals and they're sure they're, um, you know, they're trying for new lands or to reach the North Pole or but something. I, but I always go know?
0: into them knowing this. Um, the yeah. only reason I, I'm thinking, as soon as I start the book, I'm like, the only reason someone wrote the book is I can tell this must all go to shit. It's not going to be a big book about how it went great.
2: <laughs> well, endure, Though I will say that people always say, like, you know, is this like endurance, you know, um, Shackleton's Antarctic Expedition? I go, yeah, it's really like endurance, except in endurance, everyone lives. In my well, books, most people die, yeah. um, which isn't not necessarily true. Like Maybe half, you know. So and there's
1: in, a little bit of a happy ending component. Yeah, if if you're willing to get there. (laughs) It's like a half glass full, half glass. Crew half, half, he's a crew
2: half full or crew half empty kind of guy. Also, I'm always like... I don't want to give spoilers, you know, even though um, when you look at the cover, the spoiler, like, what's the that's what's that's not sub- going to go what's well. What's the subtitle? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> disastrous and Heroic Voyage of <laughs> oh, the Carlic. see, oh, it's right, yes.
3: both. Yeah, glass yeah. half full, glass yeah. half empty. Yeah. The disastrous. <laughs> it's an image of a ship that doesn't look like it's going anywhere yeah. anytime and soon. <laughs> the disastrous and heroic.
2: Right. Oh. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's... Um, I really do like stories that have... um you know, protagonists and antagonists and also where once things have gone really poorly, then there has to be some kind of industriousness and people who figure out whether it's navigation or whether it's like, you know, woods craft and how to how to MacGyver their way out of these really dire situations. I, I just love um Oh, and also, I guess I've, I'm sort of drawn to the cold. You mm-hmm. know, this is a second book I've written about the Arctic, and I have a third one under contract that's about, about the, uh, the going to the North Pole in dirigibles. But <laughs> we'll get to that later. In a what? Mm. In, in, well, it's right it's semi-rigid dirigibles, oh. aka blimp. Yeah. But um, oh, I got you. Yeah. So they that's tried. Someone to f- tried that. Yeah, 1905. They tried to fly blimps to the North Pole um Did they all eat each other it didn't end well let's put it that way <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah crashing a blimp a couple hundred miles from the north pole is uh not you know it's not on the usually on the flight plan yeah. um, but uh yeah i mean i just there's something about um you know the far north for one thing uh-huh. um I grew up with a dad who was a Nordic skier and ski racer and he used to take us out in Southern Idaho and, you know, I would go duck hunting on Silver Creek and, and it would be like 20, 30 below sometimes when I was a little kid, you know? And so, um, and I guess just being in cold places has always kind of, um, intrigued me the idea of like, especially historical, um, stories where, you know, they did not necessarily have the kind of gear that we have now. Sure, yeah. yeah. In some cases, though, the the Inuit Arctic clothing is probably better than right. what we have. Um, but yeah, I, I just am really drawn to um, expeditions gone awry, and then how are they going to get out of this?
0: Yeah, one of the things uh, I I want to get into with you when we get going on it is um, I've always been a big fan of Stephenson. Okay. And I always knew that he had uh, like a little bit of a fall from grace. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I didn't fully understand the fall from grace. And I don't know, like y- you paint him out to be a real—he's um, the villain of the book. But it doesn't like what he does. It's villainous. Doesn't undo why I, why I'm interested in him. R- really? What so c- I'm interested because like his his observations and the things that he recorded about the Eskimo hunters that he spent time with, I mean, he had observations and 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 um things about life ways and cultural mm-hmm. practices that I, I haven't encountered anywhere else. I mean, he might have yeah. been a total, like, what's in it for me? I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. And I'll let you guys kind of die. Um, <laughs> he might be that kind of guy, but it does undo some <laughs> of the insane stuff he did.
2: Yeah, that's true, and I mean I'm glad you brought it up because um, Steffensen Steffenson's just funny. His his he was born William, and then he changed his name back to the Icelandic sounding. Oh, I didn't spelling. know that. Yeah, oh, uh, that's, another, that's another score against the guy. Yeah, um, oh, I was way, Viljalmer. So how how, how would you have said it? Vilhelmur uh, Vilhelmur. He was born, born William. He was born William, oh, come nicknamed Willie. That would annoy the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah, if that it's happened like today. he
1: didn't want to sound American. He wanted to sound more authentic. To well, his, right, to yeah. his chosen yeah. region for being
2: yeah. an explorer, uh, you know, an explorer or a would-be, uh, you know, Arctic legend having a, a name like Amundsen or Nansen or Frijhoff, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is, uh, oh. but yeah, he it was funny because he was born William. He changed his name back to the uh, the, the Icelandic spelling, um, and, and, uh, and but his he was his people called him Staff. You know, it was easier than pronouncing Villamer, You know. Well, so, I do not know
0: that either. But the guy I used to hang out with the guy I met, I used to peel logs for log homes, and another log peeler, he's like, he oh, would always tell everybody his name's Bear Paw. And I'm like, I don't think that it probably is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the guy is what he's really complex. Um and you know, because the this book, Empire of Isis Stone, can deals mostly with the period that just has to do with the Canadian Arctic Expedition. Mm-hmm. You know? Um you know his actions in and around this particular expedition are the ones that I primarily deal with sure. and treat. But you are oh, it's, absolutely It's strange behavior, man. Yeah, I mean he w- you were absolutely right that if taken in, in totality the bulk of this guy's work, you know, um he is, was very influential in in understanding how one Uh, how it was possible in really small teams to live in the Inuit or Inupiat way. Um, The problem I think he ends up having is that he's trying to do an expedition that is of a much bigger scale, uh, involving, you know, multiple ships, 15 scientists. And so it sort of went against his core principle, which is like, if if you were in a small team, on skis or snowshoes, uh, you know, with sledges, self-contained, you're going, eating just what you encounter and living essentially off the land, you're going to be able to do better than if you're trying to take, uh, you know, whole bunches of people who may or may not have a lot of experience, uh, in ships, uh, you know, in very uncertain waters. And then that's when things go wrong. You know, um and so yeah, I I think um he he's a really complicated figure and I struggled a lot with, you know, how much to villainize him, Mm -hmm. I, I have to say. Um so in the in the scope of just what happens in this book, you know, some of his actions I think were um, you know, you can't really square it with like the what he should have done. Sure, it was yeah. self-seeking.
0: No, we'll cover it. Yeah, D- I got a quiz question for you. though. Okay, oh, what was Stephenson's favorite wild game? Meet?
2: Um I'm going to go with Ugruk or bearded seal. Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Like more huh. than anything else. Wolf. One I of didn't my favorite. That. One of my favorite yeah.
0: Stephenson meals. He talks about it in my life with the Eskimo is they find a whale. Be a beached whale, and its tongue is dried out, but it still looks good.
2: (laughs) Pretty good shape. They
0: cut its tongue out. He talks about how they had to boil it and change the water multiple times to get all the salt out of it. And they later learn from the Eskimo that um that whale's been laying there five years, (laughs) 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 so it's fermented and tempered. Oh man, we should get uh, we got to cover a couple things real quick. But we should get our terminology right. Let me tell you a story. I was on Nunavak Island. With the Chupic Eskimo. And I said to a Chupik Eskimo, I said, Hey, uh, I noticed you guys say Chupic Eskimo. Uh what like what do you like a white guy like me to call you? And he goes, Well, if I'm if I'm not an Eskimo, what am I? I'm I just I said, I'm just checking, man, because there's a lot of confusion about the whole Inuit Eskimo thing. And he's like, I've never heard anybody call me a Chupik
2: Inuit. You, he hadn't. <laughs> no. Like, what did he call himself? Chupik Eskimo. Chupik Eskimo. So, so there's, yeah. a, there's this kind of thing. I think that, like,
0: there's a lot of confusion around the terms. And now it's anytime. It's just one of those situations where, um, it, maybe I'm like, okay, maybe he can. He'll say it, but it's not cool for me to say it. But he's like, if
1: you're not gonna call me that, I don't know what you're gonna call me. It's like that. We had the the Native American guest, and we asked him. Is it Indian cool? And he's like, Yeah, but for some, it's not. You know, so So maybe it's like that. Yeah. So what what are we? I noticed
0: that in you in the in in the beginning of your book, you're like, I'm using Eskimo because all the journals that was like that was at the time like when people are talking, and and that's what that so that's the term I'm going to stick with in my book, though. Right. These are like people of different
2: tribes, and and many of them now go by Inuit, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, so I I actually have that disclaimer in the, in the, on one of the first pages of the book, and because, um, but so the, the, you know, the term uh, for most of the people that were on this expedition would be um, Inuit, or, you know, Inupiat. And yeah. so it depends a bit on where they're from, you know, yep, and, yep. and so I think it's important to distinguish, but it got a little bit clunky, um, to, that's why I wanted to just use the word Eskimo because they were using yeah, the that, word yeah, Eskimo. all your sources were using it. Yeah, yeah. Though, you know, it's, it is important to be sensitive to what people actually like to be called. No, that, right, well, right,
0: that's why I'm outlining yeah. for you that I just asked a person right. rather than guess. Right, right, and it was, right. It was it was an unexpected reply on his part.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think. Um, y- and so, you know, for the most part, the the people that we're dealing with that went on the expedition, who came with the family, who came with Stephenson, and he picked up near Barrow. They were a noob yet. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, they and there were. There were four mainly, and then this other, were five, who originally went on the expedition, right? Yeah. What and, uh,
0: w- w- they? There's a point. We got it. Okay, this is the last thing we're going to do. <laughs> okay, and then we're going to start from the beginning. Okay, this yeah. is the last thing we're going to do, though. Uh, once you cross the Bering Strait, okay, so in places it's what 57 miles, and all of a sudden you're in Siberia. Um, was that a completely different sort of like tribal? Like like it, once you cross the strait would you would you find more people who were inupiat or is it a different whole totally different tribal history and different groups of
2: humans? Yeah that's a really interesting question and a good one. So yeah, you know if you're going up there looking at the map to the left, you know, Russian Siberia um like Chuchki people and Oh, Chuch- Chuchki, Chuchki. and then, you know, to the right, Alaska and in um Canada, you you know, um Inuit Manupiet. Um, and so like, and that was. It's really interesting because there were some of the the um, native members of the expedition were like freaking out when they realized they were going to be landing on the Siberian shores. Sure. They're like, you know, my people have told me you land there, like you don't come back. They will kill us, and you know, they just had some of it was just lore that yep. they had heard, um, but and the, they end up being treated very well, um, by the indigenous people of, of the Siberian side. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question, you know? Like, in,
0: uh, in Barry Lopez's Arctic dreams, he's out hunting, he, he's out hunting with Eskimo hunters and they're off Alaska and they're hunting walrus. And he says for a while, he goes, we they were technically in Russia.
2: Right. You know? and so, yeah. yeah and so there's are. like a,
0: a little bit of fluidity about, you know, to, to, the, to them, I doubt they were talking about that being one continent and this being another continent.
2: Right. I mean, you can be on a, a floating berg and all of a, which which the people in this book end up on, you know, and, uh, like a mile square chunk of ice floating. And, you know, at, at some point you like are crossing into other Character, you know, yeah, exactly. above Russia now. And yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, these people are different. Wow, wow we're yeah. on a new continent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to not die.
0: Uh, all right, so let me back up one sec because I got I to talk about a funny story. Um, the guy wrote in, as they do. So this this guy writes in this letter. Um, says nothing to do with Arctic exploration. He's got a brother named Murray. It's a good name for a story.
1: It's a, it's a good way to start a story.
0: Yeah. His brother Murray. <laughs> You just like yeah, I don't know, man. Starts painting a picture. Nice, yeah. His brother Murray is driving through the night on an archery deer hunt when his truck ran out of gas. His truck and his gas can were old. Okay, the truck's fill spout had the flap on it, and his gas can spout was made for regular gas, so the spout diameter prevented him from filling the tank directly from the can. You can picture this, right? I keep I'm gonna point out to listeners in my truck. I keep a little funnel that's well adapted to my A little male, yeah, like a little funnel well-adapted to my truck's intake. He took an arrow out of his quiver to prop open the flap and was going to spill gas from the can into the opening. Totally. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. With the arrow holding the flap open, he reached for the can from the bed of his truck and promptly pushed the arrow's knock into his eye. He pulled the arrow out, filled the tank, (laughs) felt okay, proceeded on his trip. The next morning, his eye was swollen shut, so he headed for the hospital. He was examined by the doctor who took x-rays and determined that no permanent damage was done. Over the next year, Murray had recurring sinus infections, which he never had before. He'd take the prescribed antibiotics, get better, only to have the infections return. Now here's what this story takes. You can probably see where this is going. But I I almost want to call uh, our resident doctor, Adam, Allen.
1: Yeah, we haven't (laughs) talked to him. We haven't had reason to talk to him a while. Like,
0: okay. (laughs) One day, I'll... Okay, go on with Murray here. One day while at work, Murray had something caught in his throat. Began to cough. He coughed up a pocket of mucus that had something hard encased. When he wiped the object clean, he found the knock of the arrow... Which had come loose, got into his eye socket, worked its way through his sinus cavity, and then out the back of his throat in a year's time. I got a lot of questions. The plastic plastic didn't show up on the x-ray.
1: Like, I, I wear contacts, so I just don't know how.
0: But you hear about those dudes that get shot by nail guns and don't know it. Sure, yeah. It's, and that doctor that broke that file off up in my mouth.
1: My my other question is how did he not notice the knock was missing from the arrow? I could totally see how you wouldn't notice Just that. Toss it in the bed of the truck. And or
0: you'd it. think that it like you'd think that it whatever. In all the yes. I, don't
1: know. I wonder if he kept it for you a second. You ought souvenir. to write a book about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's a mystery. <laughs>
0: yeah. That'd be a good book for
1: you, man. But uh, yeah. No plastic showed up on the X-ray. I don't know, man. i give it a 50-50. Phil's not buying I'm it. I'm
0: not buying it. You're not buying it, Phil?
3: <laughs> we no. got to talk to Alan this guy. Phil's
0: saying this guy's a bald-faced liar. Mm-hmm. I think this guy might come down and beat Phil's ass. <laughs> he's risking that for
1: sure. We got to talk to Alan. You
0: call me yeah. a liar, Phil? Phil's going to know when he hears that from
1: across the parking All lot. I know. When he
0: hears that from across the parking lot, he's going to know that it's theater days are through. Yeah, that's
1: yep. right. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's a better outcome than if... Uh, the other end went in with the broadhead. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> you can cough that
0: up. Here's here's a correction that came in. And I, this guy has no listen. I'm going to read the correction. During episode 398 with Cole Wetzel, Steve makes an error when discussing the capitalization of wildlife species common names. I'm quoting here, Steve is correct when he states that black bear would not be capitalized when using a sentence. Okay. And also, that proper nouns such as English would be capitalized when used, like an English sparrow. I was talking about how I need to do a seminar for my colleagues because I will oftentimes have to go through something incorrect where someone capitalizes black bear. Okay. However, he is incorrect that sparrow would not be capitalized when usul- when utilizing a species official name such as English sparrow. Still quoting. The American Ornithological Society states on their website, English names of birds are capitalized in keeping with standard ornithological practice. As such, unquote, as such, the official common names of all bird species, such as whooping crane or red cocketed woodpecker, would be capitalized when written. If using more generic descriptors such as woodpeckers or eagles when describing groups of birds, the lowercase version should be employed. He goes on to say, "I know Steve prides himself on being correct, as evidenced by every time he argues about a missed trivia question." So I just wanted to provide a helping hand. I have one word for this person. Uh uh-uh. oh,
1: yeah. First off, the American <laughs> my, ornithological my, retort. So- my retort is uh uh-uh. oh. <laughs> yeah, first off, uh, <laughs> the American Ornithological Society doesn't get to decide what's proper English, right? I know he could have like,
3: listen. It, it makes no sense to me that he he agrees with you that black bear would not be capitalized either word, but English sparrow both would be capitalized or that's, that's, red I,
1: cockaded woodpecker would be capitalized, which is, is just it, like black bear. yeah
3: He's,
1: how about like
0: don't get your don't get your grammar from wherever you got it. Also, there's a phenomenon. And, and I love this guy thanks for listening. <laughs> Listen, I'm not hacking on him. I love. It's great that he wrote in. Not hacking on him. I'd rather he wrote in that didn't. But you're just wrong, buddy. The other thing I'll point out is, um, some, I, I know some people that when they're telling me stuff, I'm always like, how could they have gotten that information? And I think that some people proceed all their internet searches with the truth about exactly. We've known a couple <laughs> people like that. <laughs> like, like if you were to search. Like, the picture that you're like, oh, I'm going to do a little research on Hillary Clinton, okay? Yeah. And you type in Hillary Clinton, okay, and you could read that stuff, or you'd type in the truth about Hillary Clinton and oh, read boy. that stuff. Yeah. It's like, because you sort of like, there's there's two, you know, versions out there. So, I think maybe he wrote in the truth about capitalizing Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> um. Here's another half correction. Then we're, then we're back with you, buddy, so hang tight there. No worries. But you, you, as a writer, you're probably interested in that.
2: Uh, very much so. Yeah. You have anything you like to add?
0: Kind of fluid.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think language changes over time, and, you you know, it the rules um, are not static. But, you know, there are certain things where you would want to use a Latin word for something, you know. Uh, you know. Um but yeah, you can get in the weeds on this stuff. Oh yeah, you ever <laughs> read Lewis and Clark journals?
1: How they oh, just yeah. randomly capitalize, like <laughs> oh, for whatever reason, all all over the spell <laughs> something different, like in the same paragraph, it'll be spelled two different Yeah, ways. just like decide to capitalize yeah.
0: beyond all of a sudden in the middle of the <laughs> Uh Okay, here's a guy. This is, this is one. Heffelfinger's not here, but this is one for Heffelfinger. Here's a wrinkle that crossed my mind in the ongoing. I added the word ongoing. I misquoted him. He's saying, here's a wrinkle that crossed my mind in the white tail, white tail deer debate. I'm adding that's an ongoing debate with our buddy Heffelfinger. He asks Has anyone brought up how big horn sheep, big horn sheep, is the accepted name? It looks to me like it's grammatically the same as white tail deer. But no one insists that you call them either bighorned sheep or just
1: bighorns. Wonder what Heffelfinger thinks about that. Bighorns is pretty common, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. But I get what he's saying about the comparison to white-tailed and horned.
0: I bet if you went back in time, mm-hmm. you would find that they probably once upon a time, Heffelfinger will have some smart-ass no at yep. all thing to say about this. But I bet if you went back in time, it was like big... You'd see an example of Big it. hyphen horned.
3: Yeah. It was before it was officially named, they would just describe these animals as, that deer is right. white-tailed. That yeah. sheep is big-horned. Mm-hmm. But now, and then it just becomes, like Buddy was saying, becomes something entirely on its own after a while.
0: So you'd have to look at what... um yeah. It'd Take about three seconds to go look at like what is its official
1: name. I think mm-hmm. its official name is Bighorn Sheep. Yep, but this guy's not wrong like the last guy. No, was <laughs> wrong. <laughs> remember do you, when you
0: were a kid? Did you watch Happy Days? Oh, yeah, reruns. You yeah. remember when Fonzie had to apologize, but he uh, yeah, he couldn't do he it, couldn't pronounce he couldn't say wrong. the word. He'd be like, I was <laughs> 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 all right, buddy. How do we begin? Um, let me set the scene. One of the things I like most about this book is that you're going to take off after this is that um, when, when I give a at times I'll give a list of like 10, 10, my 10 favorite books, 10 greatest books for outdoor enthusiasts. My life with the Eskimo is always on there. Okay, it's amazing. Yeah. Give, uh, like Arctic dream. It's like coming into the country by John McPhee, like greatest, greatest book for outdoorsmen. Okay. Be like coming into the country for John McPhee. My Life with the Eskimo by Stephenson, Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez, um, Journals of Lewis and Clark. No, never put nope. that on there. Okay. No, no. Too, Too many p- capitals. Well, <laughs> I can explain why. <laughs> okay. Just yeah, I, I don't want to get into it. Um, but it's always on there. I I love it that this book begins and Stephenson is like literally finishing his
2: manuscript of My Life with the Eskimo. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing so cool. because, uh, and by the way, I think that contributes to some of the problems that end up occurring, okay. um, but we can get into that. Yeah, so
0: give us the year and, and yeah. why, like where it's going on in America. and
2: Right. So, you know, it, it, it's night. This story, empire of Isis stone begins around 1913 is the expedition, 1913 to 1918, ultimately. But Stephenson, has just come back uh, from being in the Arctic for like four years, right? Um, And he had been on, uh, in 1905, he did an expedition in in Iceland, and then he was on the north coast of Alaska and the Mackenzie River area. And he was really interested in the ethnology and studying um, the native peoples there. And also, you know, my life with the Eskimo pretty much suggests that um, his theory was that a small group of people, um, of, of white people, uh, with, you know, native assistance and adopting native lifeways could survive for an indefinite amount of time in the Arctic North and even on the ice, right? And and uh, moving between land masses and, and out on the uh, polar sea. Yeah, just then- hunting. Yeah, hunting and eating seals primarily, and walrus, and you know, back on land, caribou, and arctic fox and stuff. And he wasn't like what's cool about him too is he wasn't sort of
0: chasing the North Pole. He was just no. trying to find uncontacted peoples and hang out with them.
2: Right. He he was a different uh, you know a different kind of explorer, more of a, a you know a, a scientist explorer rather than trying to be the first at something. Though um, we can get into this a little bit later. Um, you know he he was eyeballing the idea that this place Crockerland that Perry had said Robert Perry had said he'd seen from the east coast or the, uh, the west coast of of Greenland that there was a landmass above Alaska that was undiscovered so okay. that was kind of in the back pocket
1: right was was this happening at kind of the tail end of arctic exploration that like started in say the mid 1800s with search for the northwest West Passage.
2: Right. And so, but also at the very tail end of, I mean, Peary in 1909 had claimed, uh, Cook in 08 and Peary in 1909 had, had claimed the North Pole. So that was sort of other, even though it was contested, that was sort of off the, you know, off the bucket list for people. They're like, that one, the North Pole's, you know, been bagged. Uh, now that ultimately becomes contested. It's pretty like the, seriously, the North Pole's played out. Yeah, the North <laughs> Falls, We don't need to go there. Um, but there, you know, so uh, Wilhelmer, Wilhelmer Stefansson was a very serious uh, scientist, right? And so he was wanted to um, prove in a way that you could live that that small groups of people um, could live off the ice and land um, for an indefinite period of time. Now like make all your clothes. Yeah, hunt everything you need to eat. Yeah, and and you know, if you're smart, bring along, uh, Inuit people, a seamstress and hunters, um, because their skills in these things was unparalleled. Right. Um, so, you know, in 1909, Sevenson had been, he'd just come back from like four years in the Arctic and he, he kind of, he did something really interesting. So there was this notion and he, perpetuated it that of the blonde Eskimo. So Mm -hmm. he came back in 1912 and claims that he's contacted while he was out there for four years that he's contacted these uh, descendants of Leif Erikson who are blonde haired, blue eyed Eskimos or uh, Inuit peoples. And you know, because there was a mystery of what happened to the, to Leif Erikson, like up in Greenland, right? Right, and so the 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 idea was that like descendants of Leif Erikson had um, made their way to the west and over to the islands north of Alaska and the Yukon, like Coronation Gold, right. Victoria Island, and yeah. that they were living. That these were descendants of Leif Erikson. Now this made headlines, right? New York Times, national news, and Stephenson. Um, Kind of went with it, like he just rolled with it. He didn't. He said he'd encountered these people and that he wanted to go back and study them more. And so part of well, this, but, but is that not true? Well, it's it's not true. He was trying to milk the idea that they were descendants of Leif Erikson. What what is more probable? And Amundsen talks about this later. It, is that you know that more much more recent European um, explorers intermingled with the native people there. But Stephenson was kind of rolling with this myth that these were descendants of Leif Erikson and they were called blondes. Like they hadn't
0: died out. They had right. just integrated into, yeah.
2: Into Inuit culture. And so he used that as a marketing tool, right? Kay. So he gets back after four years in the Arctic and he put this trip together, the Canadian Arctic expedition, which is my book is about. He, he whips this thing together in a matter of months. You know, sometimes expeditions of this magnitude with multiple ships and 25 scientists, you know, they take years to put together, right? So Stephenson rolls up to Seattle in 1912, perpetuating this blonde Eskimo story the the headlines eat it up. He flies over or, or sails over uh, uh, to Europe and goes to the, like an international polar conference and starts talking up like this new expedition he's going to go try to find these blonde Eskimos and um, write about them and also that there's there was a theory that there that Peary had seen this place called Crocker Land, which was a landmass uh, above alaska but it was undiscovered right so those two things were kind of the impetus for um, getting this expedition put together spring is a great time
0: to do something with your family do some spring cleaning which i kind of started today outside planning outdoor activities which i'm always doing taking a little trip to hawaii with your kids for spring break which i just did which was great you know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before I, a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And, man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save terms and conditions apply rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right and you probably got rain gear but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting to go spear fishing, getting out taking the kids to the beach I'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on, then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF-50 and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear.
2: So Stephenson goes over to Europe, makes a couple of presentations, all the while he's talking to the Canadian government. He's trying to get financing from the American Museum of Natural History, the Canadian government. And within like m- three or four months, he cobbles together this, um, expedition that's going to have the most scientists, uh, I mean, this is arguable, some will argue it, but the most scientists that have ever been on a polar, single polar voyage, um, three ships, um, one of the greatest ice navigators in history this guy robert bartlett from newfoundland who's a badass so, total badass yeah. and then you know he's cobbling this thing together the, the thing that i found really amusing is that while so they they take out they, they he gets all these scientists together he gets the money together from um the canadian government uh he agrees to become uh you know, he, he was an he was an Icelandic American because he was, he was born in Manitoba. And then they moved to North Dakota when he was like three after a couple of his family members died in a flood. And then the family moved to Nodak. And then, so the Canadian government is like, well, we'll pay if you become a Canadian citizen. So he was just totally <laughs> flexible. He's like, well, I'll do whatever you want, man. S- sign the papers. It becomes a Canadian. No patriotism. So he's an Icelandic American Canadian, you know? And, uh, so he, he cobbles this thing together. He, they take the carlick, the ship that's like unsuited really for the task at hand. Like a whaling, a whaling vessel. Yeah. I mean, it was a, you know, an, it was a carlock is the Aleutian word for fish and they, it was used in Seattle in the, in the salmon industry and it was a whaling vessel. It was like How long was that boat? The boat's about 129 feet. Okay. And, uh. So ship, I guess. Ship, yeah. yeah. But I mean, what what what's so bizarre about this is and I love it in a way about Stephenson. He's so badass. He's like you Bartlett, he ends up enlisting this guy, Bob Bartlett, who's who had been uh the backstory on Bartlett is that he had been on two attempts to the North Pole with Peary as the captain of the SS Roosevelt, like Peary's ironclad, super badass ice-breaking expedition vessel, right? And so Bartlett had gone almost to the North Pole. He got sent back because, uh, Perry took, uh, Matthew Henson instead for the final 150 miles, but he was, uh, already a known, um, explorer and had won like the Hubbard medal. He was a big deal, but Stephenson ends up like, okay, I'm going to use this guy. Um, and I'll meet you in the car um, up in, in Nome. So, but Stephenson takes uh, like a Cruise Pleasure Ship, the SS Victoria, and he's on the ship heading toward where they're all going to meet in Nome, uh, and he's he's like writing the manuscript. He's got uh, a secretary with him. He's finishing the book, like My Life with the Eskimo, thinking about how I'm going to turn this into a bestseller. While this new expedition uh, is supposed to be taking off in like a month, so he arrives on a you know on a separate ship, um, and then rolls up to Nome and is like, "Okay, well, let's go now." Submits his manuscript, so, and, and then they take the manuscript yep, and like he's me and Brody. Like, it's how yep. you write <laughs> up to deadline.
1: Was he a, was he a popular writer? Well, at yeah, the time, yeah. Like, I mean,
2: he was becoming. Um, like uh, an Arctic expert, right? Yeah. But so this thing, he had spent four years, um, he was just dropping this manuscript that was gonna be like My Life with the Eskimo, how you know, here's how it's done. And then but that was gonna be published like probably when he came back or handled by other people so that he would come back to a, uh, you know, a bestseller. And, uh, yeah, the, and he's got the follow up ready right, to go. Right. He's got the sequel. Um that's what I've been doing: labyrinth of ice, <laughs> empire of ice, and then realm of ice and and uh, oh, there sky. You go. Yeah, um, but what I found so interesting about him is that, like, so he was he was multi dimensional. You know, he already had lived um, in small, you know, with small groups um, in like the Mackenzie River Delta for y- years and living pretty much off the ice and and land and and sea ice, and so he had um, he was very good at that. I think what he was less skillful at is organizing an expedition of the magnitude of the Canadian Arctic expedition.
0: Yeah. These guys, you know, it goes to shit. So unbelievably fast.
2: It's amazing. It's like, I mean, literally like they, they leave it, and then, the <laughs> ne- and then, it, then it went to shit. They leave <laughs> and they, and they get all there's, you know, like they leave, um, Esquimalt. They end up going to Nome and then bartlett the captain of who, who's from uh, newfoundland he's like this ship it, you know it's not really suited he, this guy has been the former captain of the roosevelt like super badass vessel right and he's in this this uh small ship with i think the um he called the engine he said it has the power of a coffee pot
1: <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> just not built for breaking through ice for, i mean
2: and by the way these were not um they weren't technically icebreakers anyway, but they had to be nimble and they had to be sheathed in hardwood so that you're going to encounter ice, right? The problem is that when they took off, when they, Bartlett finally stops and says, okay, we need to do some work. We got to retrofit this ship. What time of year did they? Well, so they're taking off in... July. And, you know, in that, in that region, the window is pretty short anyway for navigable waters. Um, and they're, they were trying to make it from uh, Nome after they got through the Bering Strait and everything. They're trying to make it from Nome over to uh, Herschel Island, which is above um, the Canadian Yukon um, to the to east. So it's a, you know, some, a few hundred miles, 400 miles or something. And the goal was to get there and then they were going to unload all the ships and like retrofit everything and then get, get it together from there. And there's a sort of ongoing joke among the members of the ship. They're like, because what happens is they leave so fast, um, because the weather window is closing that they don't have all, they've got three ships, the Carlook, which is the flagship of the expedition, the Alaska and the Mary Sacks. And they're all going to be used in different ways but they have all the wrong equipment on the wrong, and the wrong members on the wrong ships. So Stephenson's like, we'll sort that out at Herschel Island. And it, they end up like, it becomes a joke among the men. Bartlett says it a few times. They're like, we can't find the, you know, we can't find certain um, scientific tools in there. It, you know, like you got a, ge- a geologist on the car look and he needs other equipment that's on the Mary Sachs, which by the way, after they all leave they're separated within a day <laughs> the armada is completely separated and they never see the uh, alaska or the mary sacks again the people of the call the carlick don't you know
0: yeah it's like it's I, like, like i want i want to make sure people understand it's be like let's say you have a big group of friends you're all going to go on some kind of monster hunting trip road trip hunting trip and you're all planning on being in different areas hunting different shit but you're in such an eagerness to get out of there and get some miles behind you, that you just load everything randomly into trucks. Yes. And in, in other people's And you're not trucks. even in the truck you're <laughs> supposed to be in for where you're ultimately going, and then you pull out of the parking lot and never see each other again. <laughs>
2: it's, how was the hunt? Well... Uh, yeah so it's 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 really funny <laughs> you point out like how quickly this thing becomes a debacle right so there on the Carlick and Captain Bartlett are, is on the Carlick and a number of the scientists right but then some of them are on the Alaska and the Sachs and they get separated like the day out right so then the ship the Carlick gets in it was a really really heavy um, winter ice and snow much earlier. So in uh, by August, early August, they're experiencing snow squalls, really 0 degree temperatures and you know, they're they're starting to encounter big ice pack already and they're they're just like 5 10 miles off the coast of Alaska at this point. Uh and you know, the guy the, like so there's a bunch of the wrong equipment and a bunch of the wrong people are on those ships. And then within days um, they get encased in. Well, so Bartlett makes what's a kind of a controversial decision, right? So you could either, in those days, there were t- different theories. You could either hug the shoreline, stay close to shore in case things got iced up, and then you can make it to land, like like you ditch mm-hmm. the boat and make it to land. Yeah, yep. yeah. Or maybe the boat you find a, a enclosed, protected bay, and then you winter there until got it. the next got season. It. But the other approach was to go out farther offshore where often there were bigger open leads and uh, open leads of water. And, and so Bartlett after consulting with Stephenson, and this becomes kind of controversial because they don't really agree on who said what Bartlett decides to take the bolder choice, which is to go offshore and then head east, through, you know, weaving through open leads between the ice and make it to Harold Island.
0: Yeah, uh, I just want to clarify a thing here, and you can chime in on this. The way you can imagine the polar ice is um, it's fracturing all the time and coming back together again, and windstorms will blow big chunks away. So you, you can pick your way through it, and then it'll get calm, and everything will weld together. Right. And then it might break apart in a different fashion. So they're literally like getting stuck in the ice. Then they drift for a day. Then all of a sudden it opens up and they can make some more headway. Yeah. And then they dodge a chunk of ice and they get frozen into some more ice. And then they realize they're still moving because the ice, then they're stuck in ice that's moving.
2: Right. It's high speed. It's kind of like going through, you know, uh, an an ice jigsaw puzzle Mm -hmm. whose pieces are being moved around by wind and current. Right. And so there's kind of a, there's a way to weave your way through the labyrinth. It, um, and you know, you have to make headway when these things open and part, and there's a, like a few miles of open water, but the stuff is all happening earlier than usual. And so, um, they never, the irony of this is that like the first thing they're trying to do, we're going to take these three ships, leave, go over point Barrow and then head east to this place called Herschel Island and meet there. They never even do that. So the, like, cause the car now what ends up happening is that the, the two other ships, the Alaska and the Mary Sachs, they make it through. But the story that I follow concerns itself more with what happens to the members of the Carlock, which is the flagship and Stephenson and the captain Bartlett are both on it. So, and a bunch of scientists and then an Inuit family and, um, a, a couple hunters. So, Bartlett makes the bold move, he's gonna go offshore and try to make his way north and then up and around and meet it at um, Herschel Island. Within days, they are what's called beset, or encased in like a mile square of ice, right? So it it sort of knits all around them and they're, they're like in a floating iceberg, so it's not like high berg; it's a, it's like a flat flow, yeah. right? And it's hauling ass, and it's well. Then so and and then things really go whack. So they 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 hang out on the ship like waiting around for a while to figure out like what's going to happen. And two really important things happen early on. Um, one is that while they're still within striking distance of the northern Alaskan coastline, Stephenson at, uh, in in second week of September decides. Hey, I'm gonna go caribou hunting. Like, <laughs> he basically tells the Captain Bartlett, I'm gonna go caribou hunting. I'll be gone for about ten days to two weeks should no disaster occur. And and Bartlett's like, What? what? You're going caribou hunting? And No, he pieced out. I, I he so there's a whole there's a whole thing that's going on here, which is that um and you know, I told you I'm not really I, I hate spoilers, but it's like, you know, my, Oh, you just my, gotta lay it out. You gotta lay it out. You gotta it, trust people are gonna yeah. read the book. Yeah. And so they're, they're frozen in, they've been floating in kind of a circuitous weaving way. They're not going any one direction for very long, for a couple, for like a month. Stephenson's all antsy because he's like, okay, my expedition, the two other ships are somewhere. I got to get out of here. You know, like I should probably go to land. Um, and so he says, I'm going caribou hunting because under the pretense that they need Fresh meat, because if they are going to be stuck for a really long time on the ship, they're gonna, they're gonna, they've got like a couple yeah, years
0: worth then, of food. How much is he yeah, really gonna, th- How much is he really gonna haul back anyway? No, that's got what
1: like, I was gonna ask. Were yeah. they set up for like kind of a normal oh, yeah. Arctic expedition where they were prepared to be there for they, years? They were prepared, prepared that,
2: to be there for maybe two years, and they, they have had the,
1: the years worth of pemmican. Yeah. Got, yeah, because because the they have like <laughs> two, former, they had two
2: brands of pemmican.
1: They <laughs> have like yeah. presumably. Former information to base stuff off of, like the terror and the Erebus, like oh yeah, disappearing and like you would they, think they would they kind would, of be like, man, shit could go bad out right. Here. So
2: usually you would bring more food than you, you know, you for a year, and then you got to figure like if things go really poorly, we got to have even more. But so Stevenson says, I'm uh, going caribou hunting. I'm taking these two Inuit hunters named Jimmy and Jerry, <laughs> uh, and also the a couple of the scientists who were supposed to be on the other ships. They're supposed to be doing like ethnological study over in above Northern Canada. And so he's like, I need to take those two guys so that they can go where they're supposed to go. And then he brings this photographer along, um, this guy named Wilkins, which is kind of cool because then you've got this photographic image of Stephenson leaving the car. Like he can't, you know, he's got the dog sled team and he's like charging off and the ship's frozen, (laughs) bailing on his expedition. And there's like photographic evidence of him doing it, you know, but he says, I'm going hunting and I'll be back. And it, you should probably light big f- coal fires around the ship in case, so I can see it. So, immediately, like, it's just a bad timing, right? Immediately, the freaking whopper of a f- storm comes in. Stephenson gets about like six to eight miles and he gets to this little island um, right above, uh, it's called, I think, uh, jo- jo- I'll find it later. But, but he um,
1: was walking across the pack ice. He, so, he's ice. walking across
2: the pack ice with dog sled team. He took the best dogs too. Took um, the best hunters and the yeah, best, best dogs. The best hunters, best dogs, and so he's like, gets to this island, and as they're camped there, a massive storm comes in, and by the time the the like skies clear, he looks out and the. Carlick is freaking gone. And now it's beelining like 25 to 30 miles a day on the Arctic drift. Just blowing in the wind. T- blowing in the wind toward Siberia, right? <laughs> and so he's like, uh, where's your ship? Um, so at that point, you know, Stephenson makes, he has to wait on this island for like a week for the, for the because now the storm also breaks up the ice all around the little island is on so that he, there's, he's like. There's water, uh, water he can't get across. Um, so he waits it out and he's kind of cool. They build like this 15 foot driftwood observation tower where he's up there like looking, dude, where's my ship kind of situation. <laughs> you know. And then he just goes to land with these, um, two Inuit hunters and the photographer and, uh, another scientist. It seems to just kind of write The whole thing off and bails. He, so he, <laughs> well, in fairness, He's got a he's got this sort of dance to do because he wants to continue doing the scientific work, and he knows that two of the ships are somewhere. Uh, if he can find them, he can maybe re outfit and retrofit and like do the and keep doing the science uh, on off the coast of Alaska and the Yukon. But as far as the Carlet goes, he pretty much just puts it out of his mind. Um, and then at that point, you know the ship is moving pretty fast toward the, uh, Northwest and it's, it's spookily following, uh, there's a drift that is known at that point. Um, a, a ship that was captained by DeLong and the book that, um, Hampton sides wrote called in the kingdom of ice talks about that journey where that, that ship got encased in the ice, very near Wrangell Island where these guys get marooned and, goes for like, I don't know, a, over a year and, and Nansen, the, uh, Norwegian legend had intentionally encased his ship, the Fram in ice to follow this same drift pattern to prove that that was the way the prevailing drift went. And Nansen was clever enough. I can never figure out why these people didn't learn from Fritjof Nansen because he, he designed a boat called the Fram and he designed the hull to be rounded so that when inevitably the ice flows encased around your ship, it lifted the boat up onto the flow. And then you've just got like a hotel, yeah. you know? And so instead of instead of like crushing the ship. So, yeah. I mean, it never, never really understood why they didn't start building all of these ships that were going to be used in this way with rounded hulls. It's like, um, but they didn't. So anyway, now the story ends up being about like, it toggles back and forth between w- what uh i stay with stephenson for a while to uh follow his actions and inactions and then the story goes to what happens to the members of the Carlick? Because it their saga is really only sure. just beginning. Yeah, yeah. Was Stephenson's
1: plan to go overland to the rendezvous point, or was that even no? Y-
2: yeah, well, so he he did. In fact, like he you stopped up, by to visit his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, well, right. So there's a. <laughs> it turns out he had a uh, secret wife and child, like in Pied. And um, um, I theorize that that was partly. What his thing was is that he was like, like, I can either, I'm probably going to be on this ship for a year, maybe two. Uh, I don't, I'm like within 10 miles of land. I'm freaking out of here. I mean, you know, he makes a bunch of excuses about like the caribou hunt, but he, there was some suggestion that the caribou were sort of out of that area by then. Like, and he, they don't, they don't get a caribou ever. Like it's like, okay. So then he ends up reuniting with this, um, wife named Fanny that we'll call her uh, his indigenous spouse. Uh, and they had a young son named Alex and he had left them a few years before. And, and then, so he's going to reunite with her and then try to cobble together the remnants of this expedition for which he has, you know, convinced the Canadian government to give him many hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, he, he had some, uh, rationale to like make this thing work. The thing is he, I just find that his inaction around trying to like do anything about the car look. Um, ends up being why I view him as a little bit villainous, but not, I mean, he's, he becomes, I mean, he does great science, but anyway, so then the story becomes about like what the hell happens to this ship floating in a square mile of ice across the Arctic ocean, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: We can, we can leave Steph, Stephenson behind, but, um, leading up to it, what was interesting is he's doing media. (laughs) and the and he he says kind of like cryptic shit yeah. that the people on the crew um like he's a little fatalistic about yeah. all the things that could go wrong you know and people on the crew keep reading are reading like interviews from him and right. like this guy's out of
2: his mind and well th- he's yeah, like the- quite comfortable with the fact that you know he's like we we may never return well know? and he, and he says at one point like the scientific inquiry everyone on the crew and scientists know that the um that the goals of the expedition and the scientific information is much more important than either the ship or the lives of its <laughs> members and they're like, Wait, what? I'm one of those (laughs) I signed up for (laughs) this. What? That's the boat I'm on. (laughs) Wait, I'm going to die? Wait, is that what you're saying? And so, yeah, they're not happy and they have like, you know, they have big meetings. This is before they ever even leave. And, you know, some of them are saying like, I'm not going if that's the case, right? Like if
0: that's his attitude. Well, also
2: he makes them sign over, which was not uncommon at the time. Like they're all going to keep journals and diaries and stuff. uh, Thank goodness. Or I wouldn't have these books, you know? Um, But is like, Oh, by the way, while he was in Europe organizing this trip, he's like made all these sweet publishing deals and, and media deals with, um, you know, papers in England, the New York Times, the, the Globe and Mail in Toronto. And he's like secured book rights and everything. And so he's like, oh yeah, you guys got to hand over all your journals and stuff. Um, so he deci- he's not going to get paid. They're all getting paid. So his rationale is, look, you're getting paid. I'm not getting paid as a member of this expedition, even though I'm the expedition leader, but I'm going to get paid on the back end on publishing rights. So he's organized this whole, um, empire of, uh, of, of publishing. And, you know, they're reading about this in the paper also going, well, so wait, what about, uh, like, what about us? And he's like, you know, you signed, you signed the contracts. What can I tell you? <laughs> you know, like, get on the ship, man. <laughs> All right, so let's pick it back <laughs> yeah. up with the carlic. Right, so this is where the story, I think gets really freaking good. I, I look at it in terms of like three, to three stages of, of yeah. uh, what happens, right? So after Stephenson goes on his caribou hunt, you've got, I don't know, man, the numbers are elusive to me, but like 17, no, 20 some members are still on the ship. Um, you've got like 30 sled dogs, right? you got a couple of these skin umiacs that are pretty cool. You they, got they got a house cat. They got a house cat in Azure who's just awesome, tough cat. Um, and they're floating really fast on this encased in, in case ice toward Siberia, essentially toward the North of Siberia. Now they, they float for months, right? Now this is not uncommon, like, you know, um, and the ship is set up, right? So they've got, they're still trying to do some science, right? they they got this dredging um mechanism and they build an igloo out off the ship and they this one scientist uh Murray is like hauling up all sorts of um creatures and sea life that has never been seen before. They were doing legitimate science but um that ends up sort of falling apart because And they got they, like that like sextants and whatever the yeah, hell they yeah, use. They, they know where they're at. They're they, taking
0: soundings of depth. And, yeah, they so. have a,
2: a general idea of where they are um but the, but now, okay, it's starting to get to be September, October, November, December, right? So then in the weather, you know, now the light's gone. Uh, so now you've got basically Arctic night has fallen on them. They can't, you know, they can't really take readings anymore. It's pretty much dark. And so they're floating along, they celebrate like Christmas on the ship. They're out there. What I love too, is that, you know, they're, they're doing some really interesting things. They got this, um, character who's on the ship named Bjarn Mom and he's only twenty-two and he's a Norwegian um, guy who who's really into skiing. He was a ski champion. So he's like teaching all the he's teaching Captain Bartlett and all the other scientists how to ski, right? He, they build jumps and stuff. Kind of unwise because Bartlett like bites it at one point and almost breaks his hip. You know, he's like, probably don't need the captain, you know, doing Nordic ski jumping here. <laughs> right? It's like what the hell? And but you know they're living they got enough food. They, they, you know, they're the living quarters uh, are fine. They shoot some polar bears. They shoot a couple polar bears en route. Um, they go duck hunting. One of the scenes I really love is that they, they had these Peterborough canoes that were on the ship that they were going to be using. They were going to sort those out at Harold Island and they were going to use them on the Mackenzie river Delta. But so they take these out in some of the, they start noticing a lot of ducks out there. Right. So the couple of the Inuit members who they had, hired on at Barrow point um, Barrow are doing a lot of seal hunting and Bartlett and one of the couple of the scientists are are like, well, there's a bunch of ducks out there and they did have some shotguns. So they end up taking these Peterborough canoes out in the, in the open leads. And it's pretty cool. Like they set behind these ice hummocks as a blind, and then they go flush up a bunch of ducks. And you know, these, these guys were not practicing, uh, you know, game sportsmanship. They're like water sluicing sure, yeah, fifty yeah. ducks. You know, they won't need them for food, so they they get a bunch of ducks and and um, they're shooting. They shoot a few polar bears. Um, I was surprised too that they, they, they're eating those bears raw. Yeah, sometimes. Oh, wow. they, yeah, I mean,
0: avoid the liver though.
2: Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. The, yeah, get it, yeah,
0: explain that about. The, well, the, so it the, can kill you.
2: Yeah, the bears eat uh, high. Uh, portion of, of seals. Right. And so they end up having, um, large quantities of vitamin A in their livers, it turns out. And if you eat, if you eat a bunch of this, it'll kill you. It's, it's kind of cool because the, the Inuit members of the expedition seem to know this, right? I, 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 like there was, a um, there are stories that were like of the, um, what the heck's the name of that, um, expedition, but of the, uh, uh, the Dutch expedition that went in like 1587, but they, these guys, um, Barents, William Barents, like they didn't know. Right. So they're, they're eating, they're eating bear livers and, um, getting super sick and dying. Um, so yeah, they, they, you know, at this point there, Bartlett has decided like, okay, our goal now, they they know generally from the, the, the logs of DeLong, the trip that, like had to go 10 months more in case of ice, it blew by Wrangell Island and never was in striking distance of it. So they missed it. Barlin knows that Wrangell Island is really the only hope if they're going to make it to land once they start moving 30 to 60 miles a day in the in the drift and and current. And as it happens, they 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 reach a certain point where they're probably within 125 150 miles of it and they they're able to see it okay at at, at a certain point but but the problem is now larger flows are starting to encroach around the flow that they're on and there's they're they're, they're going to get pinched they they know they're going to get uh, probably crushed right so bartlett has the good sense to begin offloading a whole bunch of gear, food, sleds, they build kennels for the dogs, you know, very organized. And Like he's hi- getting
1: ready to take a walk. He's getting
2: ready. If this thing, if the boat ship gets crushed, we're going to have to live on the ice for a while, right? And so um, it takes a little while, right? So there's some false alarms that the, these fang-like, you know, teeth of ice, to, crush into the side, but then they're pumping, they're able to pump it out for a while. They actually are able at one point to um, unload a bunch of the stuff and the in the sh- garlic ra- rises up so it's not as imperiled. And that sort of the picture on the cover is, is when it was a little bit up higher and they got ice blocks and stuff shoring it up. Eventually that's all, you know, the ice is way too powerful and the ship gets crushed. And by that time though, Bartlett has had the great forethought to have, you know, a year's worth of food and gear. And they've built some igloo shelters and they, with a lot of the crates and stuff, they have one. It's called the Box House. So they have manufactured sleds. Yeah. They manufactured some uh, Perry style sleds while still on the Carlick and they've got dogs. So Bartlett's thinking is okay, if I can, if the ship gets crushed, when the ship gets crushed, we're going to have to live on the ice until. March when the light gets good enough to travel again, right? And so, invariably, the ship does get crushed. Um, it's a great scene, though. I, I I love the scene where Bartlett's got a flair for the dramatic, right? So he's he's in the he's in the galley. You no, know, everyone's off on the at the box house and the ice house. They're they've taken everything off there. They've got their um, beds, you know, sleeping situations set up, and Bartlett's like stays in the, the galley and he's got like a phonograph and he's playing record after record and then theatrically kind of throwing them <laughs> into the fire, you know, and he saves, he saves Chopin's funeral March for the last one. And it, you know, I would love to see this in a film like great. Cause he's like, puts it on, you know, and it's got this like dirge thing. You could, death is coming. <laughs> like, and then he goes out onto the rail. If the you last saw this one. scene
3: in a movie, you would think this is oh, over no, the no, top. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <like>, Calm down,
2: <laughs> dude. Yeah, I like, what are you doing, man? And he stands on the rail and then, you know, right as funeral march is playing, the notes are drifting off into the Arctic wind. I milk this pretty hard, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he, he steps off and the car, I mean, it's kind of bizarre, like, to think you're sitting there, the ship you've been on for a few months, there it is and like when it goes down you know it's like they've raised the flag to full mass and then it's like it goes down the flag goes down everybody's watching and then the steam spout is like you just see and then all of a sudden your ship's gone and you're on the ice going okay now what right
0: Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting in to go spear fishing, getting out taking the kids to the beach i'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off i just run a hoodie I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch.
3: $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only speeds lower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint mobile for details.
2: The story becomes about, to me, I think that one of the coolest elements is that Bartlett's driven. He understands kind of the situation, which is I've got to get these people to land. Now, Stephenson later argues and I think incorrectly that they should have probably bolted like he did way earlier, um, across the ice, but Stephenson was already, um, a very skilled, uh, ice traveler. He, and he had lived with, you know, the Inuit and he, he knew how to do it in small teams. You know, you've got like 15, 17 people, only a few of them had any, uh, Experience on ice. Bartlett and this guy named John Hadley that they had picked up in Barrow also, um, and other than that, you know, these are not experienced Arctic travelers, except the Inuit that they were with uh, that they had brought, who basically save all their lives. Uh, but so Bartlett knows, okay, at some point, I'm going to have to get all these people to Wrangle Island, if if we get close enough to it, and then. I'm gonna probably have to go myself with maybe one of the two um, Inuits, Kuriluk and Kataktovik, and take them across the long Strait south to Siberia, and then go somehow get word to the larger world that they're we're marooned on Wrangell Island, or they're marooned on Wrangell Island. Because he reasons that not, going en masse with 20 some people is not going to work.
0: Yeah, and only one uh, as far as they know, only one white guy has ever been
2: there. Or yeah, one I group mean, of white like Muir, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we John Muir, the the naturalist, you know, had like written the only real first descriptions of the place, right? Yeah,
0: and it's interesting that they know too that that Wrangell Island has driftwood.
2: Right. And another island doesn't have driftwood. Yeah, Harold Island doesn't have driftwood and it's small and uninhabitable. But it's really close. It's like within 30 miles of Wrangell Island. And then Wrangell Island is, I mean, it has populations of polar bear. It has populations of walrus. It ends up having a, lo- a lot of um, wildlife. Um, but- let me, hit, that, let me
0: hit you with another quick stuff yeah. and thing from my life with the Eskimo. When he's up in the high Arctic, he's on he, he's with hunters who have never seen a tree. So cool. But they have driftwood. Their explanation of what driftwood is, they think it's a plant that grows under the water. Seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. And he's like, it's shit. It's pro-, he speculates that it's trees washing out Mackenzie Delta, going into the Arctic Ocean, landing on these islands. And then you just like, I don't know where that shit came from. And right. Like,
2: it's, a, it's a seaweed. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you have no way. I mean, You've never seen a tree. Yeah, it just listen. Well, and by the way, there are no there are no trees on Wrangell Island, so the driftwood you know has has come from other places, yeah. right? And you know, luckily they know that from these these logs that they had, and yep. um, and so that you know, Bartlett understands that basically, if I can get them all to Wrangell Island, I got to go then for help, right? And then that's a whole other ordeal. So the book essentially toggles between, I mean, get, first of all, getting to Wrangell Island from, after they take all the stuff off the ship, that place is called, they name it Shipwreck Camp. <laughs> you know, It's like, makes sense. And so they're like, they, they, they've got a complicated problem, which is that they've got a year's worth of food. Yeah, you can't move well, it. You can't move it. Like you can move some of it and fuel, right? So there's an odyssey of getting from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island and then the other odyssey of Bartlett trying to go get help. Well, real quick, hit those dudes that that tried, the the other guys that pieced out. Right. So, um, is really, while they're drifting along, Stephenson's left and, you know, during the dark night Things are starting to get, you know, as they do on a ship, like some people are getting freaking cabin fever and some people are like, you know, uh, we're in close proximity. There's arguments and the scientists, uh, three of them, uh, one is named, uh, Murray, one is named McKay, um, and this other Frenchman named Henri Beauchat and those three guys, um, the two guys, um, Forbes, uh, McKay, and Murray had been with Shackleton on a 1909 expedition. So, the, in the, in those expeditions, they didn't use dogs, they like man hauled, right? So, harnesses on you and you're pulling lighter loads, right? And so, for a number of reasons that aren't fully explained, like why they're so adamant, um, th- these three guys decide we want to leave the Carlock. Just okay? go it alone. We want to go it alone. And Bartlett is in a tough spot because, you know, in if if this were a military situation, he would be able to say, like, you, you can't leave the ship. I'm in command of you and the ship. But because they were scientists hired by Stephenson, it was sort of a gray area. And Bartlett um, decides that he's going to support them in their decision. I mean, there were some murmurings of mutiny and stuff at a certain point, but, and actually the three guys asked this other uh, Norwegian guy, um, if he will go with them and he's really become close to Bartlett and he's devoted to him. And he's like, basically, if you ask me again, we're going to have a problem, you know, like, I'm not going with you and, um, you know, quit, could asking me about it. But so they end up, um, striking off on their own. and before, Bartlett and the rest of them head for Wrangell Island. Now, what's kind of cool is that they have built a series of, in knowing that they have to transport all this gear and food uh, in the direction of Wrangell Island, they built a bunch of, like a relay system of igloos, maybe 10 miles apart. It's kind of cool, really smart, because, you know, if you keep going back and forth and bringing some stuff, setting up caches, coming back to shipwreck camp and then going forward again and moving to, and building another igloo, you're also creating a kind of trail, you know, there's a lot of wind blown activity. And so, and, and so it doesn't stay completely there, but they, they mark these igloos with uh, flattened pemmican tins so that they can hopefully see them. Um, but these three guys decide to go it alone and, um, they don't take dogs, even though Bartlett offers them dogs, because they had were used to the man hauling technique that they used. with Bartlett them. makes some sign of things saying— yeah, a waiver.
0: Yeah, he makes <laughs> like, some sign of things saying, we've decided to take off. Yeah,
1: but and this they, is not are, my fault. Are they going to do the same thing the rest of the crew is going to do, or are they just— <laughs> They got a different plan. They got a different, a different
2: plan, plan and, and they said, well, we, we think we're going to use some of the igloos on our way, but their plan is to, is to head south— either, they were kind of clueless because they didn't, at this point, they didn't exactly know, you know, to the spot where they are. They have a general notion that they're like, you know, 100 miles west of Wrangell Island. But I mean, it's a pretty big space out there. So they, they end up going uh, on their own. There's a really, really grim scene in which um, Bartlett continues to Uh, send out his own small teams that are going to try to make it over in, in like relays to Wrangell Island. And they come across these guys after like a week or 10 days um, on one of their forays. And I mean, it's a really grim scene, you know, like two guys are sitting there. uh, One guy's hand is out of its glove. um, And this is Murray, you know, and he has, cut himself with a pemmican tin and he's got like t- infected hand, right? It's all swollen up and, um, they're, they're barely moving. They're all, you can tell their faces are all frostbitten. They don't really know what direction they're going. And the other guys from Bartlett's teams are, you know, they're on dog sleds and they're, they're like, you guys need help. Right. And they say, well, we, we decided to do it alone. The, a mile behind them is this French guy, Henri Beauchat, who, um, is just in a dire situation. They re, and they, there's all this strewn gear, like they've been lightening their load. So it's like, you know, a yard sale. And on you said,
1: ice. <laughs> you said they'd only been out there like a week at that. Yeah,
2: point? a week to 10 days. And, uh, and, and, and they're, you know, but they're frozen. Like they haven't been um, taking good care of themselves. Like what you need to do is each night, get to an igloo or build an igloo, set up a primus stove. Eat food, stay warm, stay dry if you can, and hope that, of course, that the ice doesn't crack underneath your igloo, which it often did, you know. Um, and then so they they come across like this strewn gear and everything, pemmican, and they come across this Henri Beauchat guy, and he's he's just his feet are halfway out of his mucklucks, his his gloves are mittens are off, you know, his hands are like black and necrotic and pustules, and he's like the they're like, we need to take you back to shipwreck camp. Get on the sled. And he says, you know, let me die. Um, I'm like, I'm I'm done. Um, and, you you know, then they just like cluck the dogs on and head out. It's kind of... Yeah, and those dudes never seen again. It's just like never seen again. You know, in fairness, Bartlett sort of makes token efforts to look for him a couple times. But um, four other guys get stranded on, um, the, on Herald Island, which they... They came to accidentally, you know. They were trying to reach Wrangle Island, and they ended up on Harold Island, Harold Island, which is that really small, inhospitable, no driftwood, no food place. And they those guys um, are screwed, you know. Yeah, when did someone find their bodies? It's like 1926, I'm thinking. So someone just
0: lands on the island, takes he, a walk, he,
2: and there's yeah, and they this uh, they were U.S. Um, US expedition and they, um, I, I believe they were, they had the notion of finding out if they were still there. They were, they were aware of them. They were aware of them. And you know, so it's like, but what's, what's interesting is that that, so four, four members, Barlett's trying to get everybody over to Wrangell Island. But during the, during these relay hauls um, at one point, Mama and Bjorn Mama, the Norwegian member of the team, um he gets uh, disoriented and he ends up like within um, 2 miles of Harold Island and at this point everyone's in momin is in pretty bad condition you know he's like dislocated his knee and they they don't have that much food left he realizes he's at the wrong island so he decides uh after consultation with the other members of that little advance team that he's going to go back to shipwreck camp and these guys can stay, they're within like two miles of this island, but um, there's there's a open leads of water between it and the island at the moment. So he has to make a hard decision, right? He's kind of um, the leader of this little team. And he says, I'm going back to Shipwreck Camp. You guys st- make it here. And then they write letters to Bartlett saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay here as long as I can, as long as we can. Come try to get us if we don't... Hear from you, we'll eventually make it over to Wrangell Island ourselves.
1: How are they all kind of getting split up into different well, groups? Well, I mean, it's really uh,
2: what's interesting about that is like, you know, if you think about the Polar Sea, a lot of times you imagine it being flat, you know, and what is so remarkable about this landscape, seascape, is how ruptured and undulating and uh you know difficult it you're is. not
1: walking in a straight like 100 line, foot yeah. 100 foot pressure ridges yeah you're, you're having yeah. to go around so stuff, yeah.
2: and also you know the light that's th- a really great question though you know there are there are also um experiencing a lot of um arctic mirages right there are these um like uh celestial conditions make it so that um something out there will appear to be a landmass and it's like, uh, you know, water sky that has come up over open water and, uh, you know, it sort of looks like a landmass and it's like uh, an optical illusion. So that's part of it. Um, the conditions of trying to navigate are really hard because, um, the ice is continually breaking up and so you can't go in a straight line. You have to follow leads till they narrow and then cross there. Um, and so, they end up getting quite disoriented uh, in a number of instances, but once they have this, sort can of- I hit
0: with another Stephenson tidbit? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: That's the man. your guy
0: <laughs> Stephenson talked about yeah. one time stalking a grizzly bear that wound up being a ground squirrel. <laughs> when well, talking about, he talked about how deceptive oh the Arctic light is. Yeah, and there is another guy that was like, I can't remember which way it was. Like they they think they're looking at an island and it has two glaciers it's a walrus's head sticking out of the water that's how and, in terms of are. like just distances yeah.
2: and mirage yeah and then, and then when the light comes all the snow blindness snow blindness and, and everything's blowing so yeah it's and also you're not um the conditions are such that they're not able to take really accurate readings right and then and then not to mention the the ice that you're on is moving you know sometimes right. great distances like so so that all contributes to um the difficulty uh and and you know I'm glad you brought up the pressure ridges because one of the most badass things they do in this book is that once they decide okay we're making a break for Wrangell Island um they encounter w- when the shore ice when, when when this floating sea ice gets within proximity of maybe 30 miles of Wrangell Island, it starts bumping up against these extended spits, right? And so the ice that's hitting, it's kind of like a wave, a frozen wave. Mm-hmm. So the ice is, is hitting the shoreline far out of offshore. And
1: buckling and out. buckling and yep. then
2: growing, growing. And like some of them are up to hundred feet high. And there's some really cool pictures in the book of like them standing on these things. And you realize, oh my God. So They have to now get sleds and everything over these things. And Bartlett, when he encounters them, uh, a couple of the other guys had gone like maybe one or two miles each direction. And the thing extends for 10 or 20 miles, this long ridge of ice. And he's like, well, we're going to have to cut our way through it. That's it, right? So then they take, it takes them like four days to hack a trail trail. Uh, and, and with the dogs and ice axes and shovels, hike a, tr- hike a trail through this series of ridges. And they do some clever things. Like they tie a rope between two sleds and then they'll get one of the sleds up. The top of these ridges are really uh, terrifying and precipitous. Like if you fall down, you could well be dead or battered at the bottom. So they take these sleds and they get one to the top and then they, using men and dogs, they push it over and then it pulls the other sled behind it the weight of that sled pulls the other sled up and then they disentangle that one or untie them and then do it again. It takes them, you know, weeks, weeks <laughs> to get from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island. And at that point, you know, th- all ideas of them all making it across the long straight to Siberia are out the window because they're in quite bad shape. He, by makes, this a, time. he makes
0: an interesting call here. And this is where I'm at in the book. So from here on out, you're you're on your own. But he makes an interesting call at Wrangell Island where he wants everyone to break up into really small groups and spread out all over the place. Yeah, well,
2: the theory... Which it seems so weird to me. Well, well, his rationale is uh, Bob Bartlett decides very quickly when he lands on Wrangell Island. So, So first of all, they find Driftwood, so, and they've got some um, they have brought with them some tents, right, from the ship. They brought these bell tents. they're kind of like yurts, right? Yeah. Big ones though, big, big yurts. Um, and some other canvas uh, tents. But at first they it's more conducive to it's March when they land, March March 12th, uh, 1914. And at first that they decide like we'll build igloos, right, because the um, they're efficient. Um, so Barlett determines, okay, there's driftwood. There um, is some game. They have been encountering seals, but the seals are quite offshore. Uh, and then some arctic foxes and some bears that they have encountered in—usually the bear situation was like, they're not hunting bears. The bears are kind of hunting Kill them. them right in camp, man. <laughs> you know, the bears have been following them. Or the bears yeah. will be duking it out with the dogs. Right. And the bears like and they'll, and there's some the bear s- while he's duking it out yeah. with the dog pack. There's some really close encounters though, like oh, where yeah. one guy Hadley has to like, snag his rifle like while the bear is trying to get to the dogs, and he's on the other side of the sled, you know, and he's like grabbing his rifle within feet of a freaking ten foot polar bear. You know, <laughs> when like- they when
0: they gourmet butcher a polar bear, they like the back legs, the back straps, and the heart. <laughs> oh yeah yeah there's Not the no liver.
1: there's no human presence on Wrangell island no and by the and, way and to it does this it get day. visited at all <laughs> um from you
0: know that's the last oh. known place that had woolly mammoths yep. yeah yeah and that cool 4, so 4, years also ago
2: there's like a very yes some people most yeah. people say four yeah. Know, yeah. somewhere in that area right yeah.
0: like a dwarf woolly mammoth yeah. Yeah.
2: but so that's a really good question um at that time, 1914, there's no residents on Wrangell Island. And even to this day, um, there, there's like a couple of, so it's, it's Russian. Yeah. The Ruskies own, Ruskies one, own yeah. it, but, um, they they have like one full-time resident, one or two full-time residents. And then I was really bummed, man. I, I had almost went to Wrangell Island twice. First time my trip got scuttled. So there's a couple of, um, expedition companies that take you, um, in, in like a 50 person, um, you know, ship and then you get off on Zodiacs and you can go camp for a few days on Wrangell Island with these nature, um, uh, naturalists and That'd be cool. rangers would be really cool. Had it set up, uh, pandemic scuttled that. And then I was going to go the next summer and Putin invaded, yeah. uh, Ukraine. And then like, it's, they weren't going to call that Russia. Off. Yeah. We can't go to Russia. So that was kind of a, a bummer. But so then Bartlett, you're right. He made the call that like these people. So in getting across the pressure ridges and getting over from Shipwreck camp to Wrangel Island, um, some of the members are in pretty bad condition. Now I will say the Inuit members, Kurluk, his wife, uh, Kirak, who's nicknamed Auntie and the two kids, Helen and Mugpie, are like nothing it's like th- nothing has happened to them they're in absolutely great yeah i love
0: they got little kids the little kids
2: are always playing The little kids are playing <laughs> and they got the cat you know everybody else is like dying the kids are like running around <laughs> they're like i don't see the problem um eat seal blubber and have really nice arctic clothing you know but um you could blame Stephenson in part for this because he he brought auntie along kira to sew arctic clothing and then but he bought a bunch of the skins pretty late in the game. So like she's sewing and teaching the members to sew while they're still floating along. And they didn't like, they weren't fully kitted out all the members. Anyway, Bartlehead makes the call that like these people are too tired, frostbitten, uh, and to make and inexperienced to make it across. It's about a hundred miles from the Southern coastline of Wrangell Island to Russian uh, northeastern Siberia. What is the disease they're getting? So that's, yeah, it's interesting that they're, they start coming down within days after Bartlett leaving with catectobic, they start coming down with this swelling sickness. So their limbs are getting really, um, their limbs are, some of them their hands and feet are swelling to like twice their normal size. And, the there's two theories. One is that the pemmican that they had was somehow flawed and the ratio of fat to protein was wrong. I mean, not not good enough so that they begin to get um, what's called nephritis or it's like a inflammation of the kidneys um, and imbalance. You know, they've got mm. like a, a diet, dietetic imbalance. But it's freaking everybody out because it's not scurvy because um, they're getting some meat you know, here and there with the Arctic foxes, the seals and the polar bears. Um, but then, you know, th- they start to, so that's the other thing. Stevenson doesn't know that like, he's like, well, they should have all gone with Bartlett. Bartlett just leaves with one Inuit guy, Katak the problem is, he, you know, it, it'd be like taking all your buddies and they're they're in terrible shape and they can't go. Like, you know, they're, they're no longer fit for this track across the ice that's going to be dangerous itself. To go fetch a boat.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, in, in a and,
2: very roundabout way, go fetch a boat.
1: Yeah. Now, when would they have been, like, considered missing or, well, like, how long would it have been?
2: So, Stephenson makes land in, like, October— uh, or late September, early October of nineteen thirteen, and eventually he does. He sends word to the Canadian government that, uh, "Oh, I've lost my ship." Yeah, <laughs> but no, he has no idea where it is. <laughs> I have, I have no idea where my ship is, but it'll probably be fine because they have these umiaks, which are skin boats, and you know Stephenson's thinking more like he, what he would do, and but he would only do this. A loner with a really small team. with him and two into a hundred Yeah, he's yeah. not going to do it with like a bunch of inexperienced people. So he reports to the Canadian government that like the flagship Carlick, is gone. It'll it will it will either be crushed. Most likely, it will be crushed, or it's going to like bypass uh, Wrangel Island and end up like somewhere. Else, I love, cr- yeah. There's <laughs> this. There's this.
0: I, I forgot about that. When he's talking about the like, in some number of years, right. When you're all dead, it'll spit you out like in Greenland. <laughs> yeah. And it says, I love his line. He says, it "It'll like sh- go around the Arctic and it'll like spit you out, but it takes a few years." Yeah. It says
2: either either them or their wreckage. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh, great. So look. <laughs> look
0: so they and, they uh, were going west, but watch to the east. Are the are the other <laughs> coming two, back? Are From the other around. two
1: ships? meanwhile just like they've gotten where they were supposed to go and they're just hanging out waiting right
2: so when Stephenson arrives back on mainland uh alaska he he's cruising along the coast and he runs into some of the people that actually that he had known from uh, the previous expedition he was on and they have you know they're hearing uh stories like there's reports okay uh yeah, the Alaska and the Mary Sacks have been seen and they're actually wintering over in this bay before Herald Island, but they're safe. So he learns that those two ships are safe. So at that point, Stevenson decides, okay, I'm going to re-outfit what's called the New Northern Party. And <laughs> <laughs> that other one, that's the old Northern Party and they're screwed. It's like, it's like Rumsfeld's old Europe, right? right? It's like, well, they're still your people. Um, but anyway, he's like... I got this, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. He's also really clever because he knows from where he is, how long it takes mail to get to the Canadian government. It has to go by like dog sled and it's, he knows that it's going to leave like by December 1st or something. And then it's going to take a couple months to get to the Canadian government. So by the time he knows that by the time they get the report that the car looks gone and I'm re-outfitting, he will already have done it. Like he'll already be out on the ice doing his thing. And they can't really say, don't do that. Right. Yeah. And he, he does some pretty um, devious things. Like he's got a, bl- he's got an open checkbook. Right. So he arrives at one of these um, trading posts and it turns out the guy is basically leaving. Cause he's been there too long and he can't stand the winners anymore. And he's like selling everything. Sevenson like buys it all. And he goes to another guy and he's like, finds the guy has a really cool schooner. So he's like, Hey, can I buy that schooner? And he, he writes him a check for like 13 grand, right? On top of, the uh, two sh- ships that he's already bought. Um, yeah, the numbers are astronomical what he ends up spending. Right. But so Stephenson quickly, um, regroups and he, he has like, he has it out with, um, the, the expedition leader of the Southern party, this guy, Dr. Anderson. Um, and You know, Dr. Anderson sees that Stephenson, first of all, he's like, where's your ship? Why, you know, and why aren't you going to do anything to go find them? And Stephenson's like, I can't do anything. Nobody can go there until summer, right? That part of the world, you've got like a six week maybe window where there's going to be open water and some of these places are accessible. But at this point, they don't even know where the Carlic is. So Stephenson is right to say like, there's nothing I can do about it personally right now, except... To say we should be organizing rescue missions for next summer, right? Anyway, he goes off onto the ice, uh, re outfits, grabs a couple Norwegian dudes, and goes off and um, continues to do, you know, ethnological and um, scientific study and just sort of spid, bids goodbye to the garlic. And By the time he ultimately gets back, Oh, by the way, he re, he abandons his wife and child again <laughs> after no. being with them for a little while. Um, it's a touching scene of good farewell. <laughs> um, anyway, so Stephenson's doing that, and then and then the the book takes off onto where it really picks up. I think uh, momentum is after Bartlett leaves with this catatonic guy. Yes, yeah, so let me. Let they let have me an s-
0: ordeal. Yeah, let's let's just yeah. So. They get to Wrangell Island. He leaves everybody. Most There's people like 15
2: are, people. Leaves
0: them in Wrangell Island. Gives them instructions. Written instructions. Do this, yep. that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to split. Watch for me in su- such and such harbor. Roger,
1: August harbor. July,
0: July, August. Watch for me to come back with a boat. Right. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting in to go spear fishing, getting out taking the kids to the beach i'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off i just run a hoodie I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to columbia.com slash pfg and shop all of their performance fishing gear. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors, big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down, like figure it out. That means figuring it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire. To get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no, there's no such thing. It's like you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind. Okay, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash/meat eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com slash meat eater
2: and I, I should answer your previous question. So when they got to Wrangell Island, Bartlett's um, rationale was, if we set up, they're, they're on the northern, the northeastern tip of Wrangell Island. It's only like 90 miles wide and, you know, 50 or 60 miles um, top to bottom. Um, so Bartlett's rationale is that there. If we spread out and have some people at Icy Spit, which is where they land, there's another place called Cape Waring. It's about midway. And then there's Rogers Harbor, which is the southern uh western point of the island. He figures that if we distribute people in different teams, they can have better luck uh, hunting in smaller groups and, and taking care of themselves rather than having to have, you know, cook for 15 people every day. Mm-hmm. So smaller groups and also it will he'll um, distribute the hunting um, landscape a little more spread out. That's his rationale. Yeah, yeah. Now then, so right, the, he ends up like a, on a race. The book p- becomes like a race against time because Bartlett needs to get across the Long Strait to Siberia and then somehow get all the way over to the east and find his ship to cross the Bering Strait and get back to Alaska where he can send a telegram to tell <laughs> them they're on Wrangell Island right so their lives like at every moment are kind of dependent on whether Bartlett makes it and so I yeah, cut I wonder, back and would, forth that's thing I wanted to ask you about yeah. is that it, it's like
0: if Bartlett and his Inuit hunter like you know you got all these people dying and stuff happened like if they had just gone off 10 miles and fell into a lead and died yeah it's reasonable soon no one on no one on Wrangell Island is going to survive
2: I think maybe that the Inuits would have, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but because, uh, there's an a- anecdote I'll get to. Cause they the could have been, they could have been there anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, y- you know, it's not ideal because, um, of how remote it is, but, um, yeah. So Bartlett, yeah, you know, there's, it becomes, it's sort of this race against time where Bartlett is trying to get to mainland Siberia and then to get word to the world that there's a bunch of stranded people from the car on Wrangel Island. And you cut back and forth to what's happening with them on Wrangell Island and things begin to, so they, you know, they don't have a finite amount of, um, or they do have a finite amount of food, um, that they've been able to bring. And they make a couple um, gnarly treks back to shipwreck camp to to get more. Uh, some really, some really dangerous um treks where the leads break open and they get guys guys get so oh, I don't want to ruin it for you. Guys get separated from uh each other and from their and the dog has to like lead them back, you know? So things are starting to uh deteriorate on Wrangell Island in that um their physical condition is poor and they're not they're hunting constantly, but they're not able to procure enough food. They can just barely stay ahead, you know? Yeah. the uh, woman
0: and the kids, like I'd, I'd read an essay you wrote about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where the woman and the children wound up being some of the primary procurers
2: yeah. of game. Yeah. It's So it's really cool. Kurluk. Cur, uh, is the, uh, husband and father of the two children. And so he's really good hunter. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's getting seals, um uh, seals start to go offshore. So it gets harder to get seals. And as things become, um, more dire and they're running out of food, auntie is really industrious. Like she figures out how, first of all, curluck you know, fashions some um, bows and arrows because they're going to run out of ammunition too so he starts to figure like if we can if we could shoot um, arctic foxes and and um, birds with arrows that'll save us ammo because we're going to need the ammo the the bullets for walrus bears seals bigger things and so but auntie is really really clever so she figures out how to um uh, jig for cod she takes a sewing needle and bends it and then hooks it up to some sinew twine and then they stand over this little tidal crack and like snagging um, these like 12 inch to 15 yeah, tomcod tom-, yeah, tom cod they're like yanking they get a bunch of those and um, She's, the kids do some really clever stuff. Uh, one of the girls, Helen, the, the 11-year-old, uh, figures out how to put a piece of seal blubber onto a, a feather quill where, where you pull it out, right? And then she uh, has that attached to a piece of string and chucks the, the blubber over there and kind of hides. And Seagull come up and eat the blubber, the quill gets stuck in their throat and then she dr- drags it over and rings its neck. You know, um, that's like one, seagull at a time, but the biggest hunting, um, I mean, kind of the, uh, most, uh, hunting that they do. That's effective. Um, Oh, also curl look, uh, he creates snare tracks for, uh, snare traps for Arctic foxes. Um, and he, he builds two things. Uh, one, he builds a kayak, um, which is a really cool. I mean, there's there's a, a there's an image of him working with the Scotsman William McKinley that they had a camera. You know, like they have a picture of yeah, it. So it's a kayak, crazy that they are like take, snap a pictures I, now and then. I know, yeah. like, and so he takes a couple of weeks, and he it's really funny because he's hedging. Like they they're starting to run out of food, and they're like they hear walrus in the bay, and they're like, if we can get a walrus or two, we're we're set. Like you know now it's getting to be august they're thinking if winter hits again we're screwed we're going to die here um so he he builds a kayak and auntie is awesome like has has gotten all these skins from the bearded seal the ugruk and um you know he he uses an ads and you know uh he uses a hatchet as an ads and he has like you know a skinning knife and some snow knives and they, he's able to fashion, you know, find driftwood planks and stuff and fashions out the, the frame. And then they bring it inside uh, the, one of the wall tents and, uh, auntie like completely fabricates the skin outside of this kayak. But Curluck has been like hedging. Cause he doesn't want, he's the only one who knows how to run, uh, a and he, and he builds a really nice two handled paddle, you know, but he does, he has no interest in being solo in the water with a twenty five hundred pound walrus, right? So he he's here, to, like telling them, "Man, I don't really want to do it." <laughs> and they're finally like, "You got to go get the walrus. We're, we can't do it," you know. He ends up he ends up getting a walrus, uh, and you know, but it's a small one and it doesn't last that long. So by by the time um, it's starting to get near late August, you know, they're into some. Uh, rough rations they're eating scurvy grass you know it's like um Cochlearia. it's a it's a little arctic grass that has uh, that actually named scurvy grass because the it's the got Mariners some vitamin C in it scurvy yeah. yeah and then auntie is starting to make this stuff that one of the members names salad oil so she takes like chunks of blubber and puts them in a skin poke or a little bag and puts the chunks of blubber in there and leaves them out to ferment. Mm-hmm. And then when that stuff gets all congealed and fermented, they open up the bag and dip other chunks of seal meat and blubber into it. Like, uh, yeah. you know, and and the, and the uh, Inuit people are like, we're good. And, uh, <laughs> but, but like the other guys are like, I don't, you know, we really need something bigger. Um so anyway they start to plan like they realize that the window for a ship getting there but, um Bartlett had told them that in mid July someone needs to be at Rogers Harbor on the southern point and that's where if a ship's going to come that's where it will meet you um but you know, things are getting really sparse in terms of food. They know that the window is closing. And so they start planning um, to to go inland, follow this stream, go inland, build a cabin and, and sort of make their stand for winter on Wrangell Island, which is a really um, daunting prospect, you know. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, without giving away too much, um, Bartlett has uh, conspired to send a rescue armada of ships and then so these people are dying on wrangle island essentially or are going to die and unless bartlett gets these ships to them in a really tight window
0: yeah yeah uh it's probably not known but what why don't the when things get real bad why don't the inuit just like what's preventing them from just taking off you know that's like really they have the
2: skill set to take like they can make boats. They know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an there's a um, a, a kind of ethical standard. Like they, they were hired. You know, yeah, yeah. they were hired to do a job because um, it's like pulling the weight
0: for all those people. You think at a point you'd be like, I don't know if you, I don't know oh, if you yeah. guys would do this for me, right?
2: Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other thing I forgot to tell you though is that like so so Cur- 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 Look, um you know, they, they stay and they you know, they probably do realize like I'm, we're doing most of this, but though Hadley is a pretty good hunter, McKinley's a good hunter. This guy, Ernest Chafe, he's young. He's, he was the mess room boy on the Chicago. He's like 19. And he brought with him his shooting medals from competitions yeah, that yeah. he'd won. He's sort of a badass. And so he ends up being pretty good. But what, one of the things that, that at wearing Cape wearing um there's all these cliffs and they're filled with thousands of cro- they name them crowbills but they're auks yeah. or mures. um so they're on these cliffy you know they're like little kind of penguiny looking birds but they you know great diving duck um diving muir. And and so they're up there and they realize, okay, there's a lot of meat there. We can get it if we can get it. So they um, they use driftwood and and rope and they build this ladder that McKinley, who's this little, they call him a wee Mac. He's only weighs like a buck 30. He's a little dude, but he's spry. And so they're, he's going to climb up these ladders and get they you know they they don't have shotguns another thing they they blew but they have rifles so they get up to where these crowbills uh, ox are nesting and they're in the thousands so and they they're st- they're getting the eggs and they're shooting as many as they possibly can. Right. One time McKinley like falls off the ladder and goes battering down onto the snow and ice. And he's luckily nothing breaks, but he's all bruised. And then they build this other thing, like a bosun's chair. The plan is they're going to lower him, hike around and then lower him down. You know, McKinley's like, I don't know about this gig, (laughs) you know? Um, but so they're able to like subsist and they also, um, Curluck figures out that they have the buried under snow, they had this net from the Carluck. And so the they notice that ducks are starting to, um, you know, pool up in some of the larger leads. So they go out there, sneak up on the edge of a lead, and they take in unison, like three guys will throw this net and scoop up a bunch of birds. But, you know, the birds are not... Big enough where that's going to um you know that's like a couple days it gets you through. Yeah, yeah. so that all that's happening while Bartlett is on his Odyssey
1: now, at this point, we're the only three people who died, like the the three that took off, those are the only people that had died up to this point.
2: Well, those three we know. Uh, the other they, guys that went to the wrong
0: island. Harold
1: Island, island. and oh, then yeah. yeah, yeah. No, they're, prob- so, they're
2: probably dead by yeah. then. No, so there's some other okay. carnage. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but I'm just. Trying I mean, to it's really don't give anything away. Uh, it's really sad, yeah. man, because so w- w- in the split up, icy spit, Waring Point in the middle, and then the other place, Rogers Harbor. So some uh, Mammon, the Norwegian guy, Templeman, the cook. Uh, and this other guy George Malak who is one of the scientists there they end up at Rogers Harbor and the hunting is not not good there they get some arctic foxes but they they're and they're also in really bad shape so um that scene at Rogers Harbor becomes um a, a like really dire almost like the Greeley expedition and that's going on
1: while everyone's yeah. on yeah and so Island. a
2: couple times it's really sad like M- McKinley goes down there and he, you know he realizes one of the guys from the, that's been um at Mid Island he gets down to them to check on how they're doing and it's like not well you know they're like hallucinating and they're they're malnourished and so McKinley tries to make this you know noble herculean trek back to get different pemmican for mom and who can't eat this stuff anymore and find some more and bring him, bring them food. And there's some really touching scenes where like McKinley has brought him like a can of condensed milk, you know, and he's like giving it to him like he's a little baby, you know? Ugh. And you're just like, oh my God, is, is this guy gonna make it or not, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Gotta read the book to find Good old Arctic Explorer <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: stuff. That, that was one of the... Um,
0: Uh, Things I kept wondering is, uh, was there during this period, were there any of these trips where everything just went like, name for me one (laughs) that just went great? (laughs) That's a really good question. Like when you signed up, like when so at this point they've been at it for a while. Like you're in the in the teens, nineteen teens, yeah, thirteen. People have been up there dying for a long time. Like fifty percent. How are you getting anyone? To fund them. I've no, heard like, how it goes up there. Yeah, I'm like, not joining who, that. What are they
2: looking at as the sort of like way it could go? <laughs> right. Well, so that's a really great question. Um I, I mean, ironically, and I don't really want to say this because, you know, I'm I'm kind of anti Stephenson on this
3: whole thing. But so yeah, they're like, Well, he did it.
2: Yeah, yeah I, was, I, I mean, was gonna
3: ask him about Stephenson in a sec, but yeah. Yeah,
2: so he was able to I mean he had he he went Uh, with this guy, Rudolph Anderson, who ends up um, being on this, the Southern party. Uh, And Stephenson had brought back like artifacts and for the American Museum of Natural History. So the things that, that Stephenson was bringing back and the findings that they were making about like maybe, you know, underscoring all of this is like a desire to find potentially new land and claim it for Canada. So that, you know, I think, people's ability to um fundraise and to be really um convincing and persuasive i mean perry was very good at it um y- you know some of some of the expeditions had worked i mean perry even though it's contested now um had in 1909 made it to the north pole so you've got like well, and he didn't lose a bunch of guys no okay. no and yeah. you know they he did it better, though. I mean, he brought a steel-hulled icebreaker, the SS Roosevelt, right? So he, you know, um, so people could look at that and you, you could sp- be like, you know, he did it, he did it. But also, yeah. there's there's a bit of a difference. Um, I think in in all of the in many of the expeditions leading up to this, like firsts were what they were about, or discovery. Uh, of new lands being the first to the North pole, the first to farthest North, the first to go through the Northwest passage. Um, This was one of the early, like purely it's going to be scientific in nature. And so it was worth it for the Canadian government. And also the Canadian government had sort of designs on, um, if we can expand our holdings, our land mass, that's good, you know, in terms of, um, dominion over the North, right? But so I think Stephenson's ability to persuade the, the Canadian government that this thing was going to be an unprecedented scientific um, success. And in many ways it was because the work that he ends up doing, which I don't, I cover it briefly in the book because my interest was more about the Carlock and that story. Sure, yeah. But I mean, so Stephenson ends up continuing on. I mean, he conveniently like, so World War One breaks out like right as um, Bartlett and everybody, uh, you know, right right as the Wrangell Island fiasco is going on, and Stephenson conveniently uh, like goes onto the ice in like 1914 and conveniently sort of resurfaces to the world right, right as world war one ends <laughs> it's like oh good timing you <laughs> know pro- what happened <laughs> what, while i was gone like, oh yeah sure. give me a paper <laughs> the great wait, war <laughs> <laughs> wait what right and so you know a number of the other um members like have to go serve and stuff you know so um, how did uh um
0: i never looked this up Ste- how does Stephenson end up like how long does he live well, he lives, he lives in, forever, right? Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean uh, 62. Yeah. 19, what kills them? Um, he he dies of, um, I don't think it's anything like cataclysmic like cancer or anything. Like he no just, one eats them or anything. No, <laughs> yeah. no, but the funny thing is, and I, I have to add this because it, it has to do with your question about whether, um, you know, Kuraluk and his family could probably have survived or walked a hundred miles. Um, so... This is bizarre. Stephenson, you got to hand it to him. So he resurfaces, okay? And now he's, he is, his books are selling. He's writes, he's written My Life with the Eskimo, and he also writes, The Friendly Arctic, which is a a great title for a book in which most people die. vacation guy. Yeah,
3: that's him kind of laying out how you go about it. Right. He's like... What you do is you take (laughs) off as soon as things (laughs) look bad. Things go to shit, you go the other way. You go
2: live with the Inuit who will keep you alive. And by the way, Amundsen, you know, the famous uh, Norwegian uh, polar explorer, he he contests the friendly Arctic big time. He's like, this is actually irresponsible because you're you're making it sound like any yehu can just go with a rifle and live off the ice, and it's like most of the people that would try that are going to die, you know? Mm. Because but Stephenson, in fairness to him. He developed a great deal of skill in in living in this way, but so he does the most. Yeah, man. Bizarre... There's
0: no, there's like no wh- whatever you're saying about his like allegiances and in his his cavalier attitude about human life. You cannot deny. I mean, the guy could do insane shit. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and he he knew how to pick his company. Yep, that's smart. But, but
2: he could go and just go. Right. What he couldn't do was you know uh put together an expedition Couldn't of leave. this magnitude right yeah. uh, but you so- give him and a couple
0: hunters and they would do some crazy shit well, yeah, yeah so i was
3: going to kind of follow up on that like there's so many variables and there's no way of knowing obviously but in your opinion does this trip go a different way if Stephenson doesn't leave an, 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 mm, mm. from the get-go. Um, or, or at least when he sees the ship has floated away, turns around, and tries to find it Maybe. Again. Yeah, because, I mean, I think it, Stephenson um, might well
2: have been able to get more of them to land. Um, he, he still would have been uh, challenged by the fact that most of the scientists and the crew members— did not have, um, Arctic ice net na- skill, you know? Nope. So the thing I was going to say though, he, that, um, that he does, that's really a, a head scratcher, um, is that, so 1921, you know, like some years after this expedition, um, he decides he's going to organize another expedition to Wrangell Island. Right. Um, and one of the survivors, this guy's name is Fred Maurer, uh, decides that he wants to go back to Wrangell Island because he had so much fun there the first <laughs> time. <laughs> and Stephenson convinces him to do it. So he he gets like four, part of the rationale, and Stephenson wasn't really wrong about this, was that there he's already envisioning, I mean, Stephenson thought about some things, like he predicted polar flight to the, across the Arctic. Um, he predicted submarine, uh, travel in that region.
1: I was kind of, I was going to ask, was, was this expedition kind of the end of an era? For... It,
2: absolutely. They call it the end of the dog sled adventurer, you know, um, because it, things, you know, things began to change yeah, in terms technology, of technology. Yeah. But so Stephenson organizes this other trip. Now the Canadian government wants no part of it, even though he was going to originally try to to claim Wrangell Island for Canada. Um, so he's become a Canadian citizen by this time. And he's like, well, um, we can plant the flag. Uh, it was kind of contested. So he, he I mean, n- nobody will pay. So he self-finances this thing from like his book proceeds. And he uh, he sends Fred Maurer, one of the guys from the Carlook, these two other members and a woman, also a seamstress, her name is Ada Blackjack. It, this is, a you might want to read this book. It's freaking cool read empire of us on first but then um, <laughs> i'll finish it yeah so um they go to Wrangell island if things go south they you know as they do and they realize they're not going to they're not going to make it and so I think it, uh, when things go south in the north might be a good name for a, <laughs> yeah. for a good exactly. book, you know? Yeah, uh, So anyway, Maurer, the guy from the Carlook and this other guy decide to, they know, well, Bartlett did it with Kadoktovich. We're gonna strike across the Long Strait to go, they're, they're running out of food and it's just not gonna work either. This, this is 1921. They leave uh, Ada Blackjack with the one other member. These two guys strike for Siberia and die out on the ice. And Ada Blackjack nurses this guy who has scurvy uh, for a while until he dies in her arms. She lives on Wrangell Island by herself for a year. Hmm. Like figuring out Ada how Ada Blackjack. Ada Blackjack. I'll um, marry her, man. Yeah. I mean, she is tough. She's industrious. She knows how to um, use a bow and arrow. And, Did she
1: eventually get picked yeah, up? Or, yeah. She gets, she yep. gets re- recovered. I want
2: to marry her bad. <laughs> She's a good name. <laughs> He's already got a great name. I'll yeah. take her name. Yeah, <laughs> Stevie Blackjack. <laughs> oh wow!
3: You <laughs> lead an expedition <laughs> with that name.
2: Well, um, we didn't give too much away, did we? No. Okay, good. You know. Oh, what's the book about Ada Blackjack? <laughs> it, it's called uh, Ada Blackjack. Oh, that sounds a good name. Yeah. Uh, and it was written by a woman named uh, Jennifer Niven who who wrote a, the last book about this, um, but like 20, 22 years ago. Um, and uh, this this woman is, is a really great writer and has transitioned into like young adult um, writing now. No. She doesn't write about the So arc. Canada did, did you never u-
1: got their hands on... Not, not yet. No, they didn't. Um, And the Russians do.
2: Um, And, you know, it's cool because today, I I don't even know if you guys know this, but today Wrangell Island is um, a spectacular nature preserve. You can't go there without like um, being, you know, you have to have specific paperwork Make sure you're
1: not bringing um,
2: yeah, and and it's the largest uh, Pacific walrus uh, breeding ground and the largest polar bear denning ground in the world to this day. Um, and it's just uh, spectacular. If you look at um, like just look at images online of it, it's so rugged, man. The top of it's like thirty five hundred feet, um, and you know it's cool because there's you know there's beautiful rivers running out to the sea and um, polar bears hanging out. Now, the weird thing is that musk oxen, uh, people, they go, well, why didn't they just eat all the musk oxen that are there? Cause if you look at Wrangell Island, there's musk oxen there now. Mm. They, they, were they weren't there they then. They yeah. weren't there, yeah. you know? So it's like, well, they wish they'd had those musk oxen. <laughs> oh, wow. well, man, you got a good New York Times review. Hey, I appreciate the, the shout out there. Yeah. This morning, New York Times, uh, uh, said some nice things about this book and, um, I'm pleased. Uh, we're going to, you know, pump it up next week. December 6th is the drop date. And You're not
0: doing any more podcasts, are you? You uh, shouldn't do that. That's no, like,
2: no, no, competitive
0: ones. No, yeah, no, nothing that's good.
2: <laughs> no, nothing that, there's no podcasts that are, that, that are like this really yeah. that are. this it's all uh, bullshit
0: podcasts. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I like NPR, BS or something. you Well, know, yeah, it's you, all structured and formal. Yeah, yeah. You, know?
1: you already working on the, the third book in the trilogy?
2: Yeah. Thanks for asking that, man. I, so, uh, I, I do need to get off the ice eventually because it's <laughs> sort of mind numbing, you know? Um, but I did pitch a book and I'm, I have, I'm under contract to write a third book in the trilogy and it's called Realm of Ice and Sky. And it, it's about the first, uh, what are called airships or blimps. Yep. Um, I, I, they're actually semi-rigid dirigibles, but try saying that a whole bunch of times, you know, um, semi-rigid dirigibles that were going to try to fly to the North Pole. In 1905, this American God, dude. it just
0: seems like such a bad idea,
1: man. I know.
2: Well, in 1905, this American dude named Walter Wellman, so this is before Peary has made it to the North Pole or Cook or whoever did. Um, he's like trying to fly from Svalbard, you know, Spitsbergen, north of uh, Norway, uh, in in a blimp to get to the North Pole. Right now, it doesn't go well for Wellman. He he lives, but he ends up being kind of pioneer for, in, in 1926, 1926, and then later, um, Amundsen ultimately goes with this guy named Umberto Nobile. Um, he's a, an Italian airship designer. They make it to the North Pole and from Svalbard, and then but pass over it and continue on to Nome. And, right, so it's a huh. transcontinental flight, Transarctic Arctic, yeah. uh, ice continent flight of the no pole. So two years later. Uh, Amundsen takes a lot of credit for it. And this, this Italian guy, Nobile is like, man, I need to do that again. Like, and get, and make it more about me. So he, he, this is a really bad idea. So he takes, he has mostly an Italian crew at this point, Amundsen and him are scrapping. And so Nobile takes, I mean, these things are huge, like a 400 foot blimp, you know, with like the, Cabin underneath. It looks like it, the Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Led Zeppelin. Yeah, and so they take it, they make it to over the North Pole, and instead of continuing on, so the plan was to like land. It's hard to land a blimp because you need these like poles that you tie to, right? Tether to them. So he, they're going to try to like lower dudes down and do a uh, North Pole study, right? out of like repelling out of the damn airship sure yeah and so <laughs> that that'll work so anyway wow. this is the bizarre thing that happens is that they make it to the north pole it's really fucking windy and it's not going well for their ability to um you know um, uh, noble wants to go back right back to Spitsbergen and not do the same thing that he did already, which is with Amundsen and continue on. So they turn it around. They can't land or land people. They throw the Italian flag out and they're like, okay, they know they're at the North Pole. They've got good uh, readings. On the way back, the, by the way, Noble at this point has like been awake for 76 hours. He's all sleep deprived and he makes some mistakes. They crash the blimp like 150 miles back toward uh Norway, Spitsburg is Svalbard. They crash the blimp in this catastrophic accident. The cabin that has like most of the people in it, bunch of them, nine of them, go spilling out onto the ice. Right, like they're thrown onto the ice. Their legs are shattered. They're broken, and then they look up, and the uh, six of the other members uh, are still in the cabin. And, and the blimp is sailing off into the sky, and they're like, ah, help! <laughs> and they freaking fly away, never to be seen again. And now you've got these what? guys on the ice, and it, it creates the largest rescue operation in polar history, right? And then, in which, by the way, the famed explorer, Roald Amundsen, goes to go save Nobile, flies off in a Fokker shit, you know, seaplane, and never is seen again. It's <laughs> wow. <fucking> awesome. <laughs> what, is the blimp really haven't been seen? Never been seen. That would and I mean, be quite a find. Yes. How is that, I mean, how is that
0: possible? <laughs> Maybe it's still
1: flying around <laughs> I mean, up there. It's <laughs> a big,
2: big place. Yeah. And things get engulfed by the leads in the ice, you know. Yeah, just swallowed.
1: Just Ugh. I kind of rather be in a boat for a year. I think. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's. <is laughs> so that nuts, one, I gotta, man. I gotta really, yeah, gotta write, write that, that one. The, start
0: that Once one. you write that one, come back. All right, you want to hear more about Noble A and the, oh, and yeah. the bring, bring A to bring A to Blackjack <laughs> with you. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate. I really that. appreciate you guys Thank having you. me. All uh, right, so give give, the, give hit people once more with the name of the book. All right, uh, this is Empire of Ice and Stone: The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlook by Buddy Levy. Available anywhere books are sold. You bet. In audio too.
0: And oh, did you do the read? No. Nah, sons son's bitches. They didn't let you do the read. <laughs> did you? Did you that's tell me why story? Did you tell me uh, why yeah. you doing it?
2: Mean, have you heard these pipes, man?
0: Listen, man. I wouldn't let. I know. No, they said I'm doing it. another. I got it. I got so I got another book that's hitting the 10 year mark. So I'm getting the audio rights back. I'm gonna do my own read. It was just the first time you will. Nope. Oh no, you did. Um, so I had a book like. Okay. American, when, when I sold, so when I sold American Buffalo, the, the, my publisher at random house, they sold the audio to an outside place. The outside place did had t- bought the audio for 10 years. Mm-hmm. They hired some soap opera guy to read it and to hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> then <laughs> at 10 it years, me. it ran out. Yeah. Random house got it back. At that point, they were doing more audio. Yeah. Then I went in and did the read. Now the book I published after American Buffalo, my book Meat Eater, right, is the 10 year thing is reverting and I'm going to go oh, in the yeah. studio and read that son of a bitch.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I would like to if I write something more more personal, a memoir, I will probably read it. Um I'm very happy so far with uh Macmillan Audio has they did a good, really job. good guy. Yeah, it's an actor professional, I yeah. listened to like six voices and I'm like that you guy did? is pretty good. You shopped I mean,
0: around? You went through a voice catalog? I did.
2: You know, voice uh what do they call it? Um when you go up for the job, not what is it? Audition?
0: Uh, yeah, a voice audition. I've told the story a hundred times, man, probably 50 times on this show. But the, when I got my first book that a guy, that a soap opera person read, I turned it on and he couldn't get two words out of his mouth. And I had to race over, <laughs> turn it off, and never. Was it? <laughs> it and was that, just like that's not what it sounds like. Was it? Was he an actual soap opera actor? <laughs> it's or like let's he just read, read a line. That, you know, he's probably he's probably a great family man. Loves his wife. <laughs> loves his children. <laughs> it was like that being said you're going to hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I want to take it back. <laughs> yeah. Not hunting anyone down. But loves his country. Loves his wife. Loves his children. I have no doubt. But it was like he had no business saying those words. That's too bad. I kind
1: of want to hear it now.
0: Yeah, I think I'm. I have. I'll give. I'll lend it to. you. Tell me
1: how it is. No, this guy's great.
2: And by the way, sometimes, man, you're glad they because some of the words are really hard to pronounce. Yeah, you you don't need to figure it out. Yeah, you're just like (laughs) let let that guy handle it. You know, (laughs) I I know how to spell them. I don't know how to say them. (laughs) Spell a villain or like 250 times.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll leave that up to you, buddy. Yeah, it's tough. Good luck. Thank you. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. Good luck on the book. And uh, when you get the next one ready, come back. I appreciate it. Always uh, love what you guys
2: do man. Thank you very much. much.
0: Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend.
1: Yes, yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine
0: around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacobas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacobas.com. That's T E C O V A S.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.